Welcome to Startup to Last, a podcast about building profitable software businesses that are meant to last. Hi, I'm Tyler, and I run a bootstrap SaaS company called Less Annoying CRM. And I'm Rick. I run a software-enabled services company called Leg Up Health. This is an ongoing look into our journeys as founders. If you're a new listener and you want to catch up, check out the About page at startuptolast.com. What's up this week, Tyler? Not much. It's feeling like fall here. The uh, The weather is finally turning cold. I, I've got my new house that I've never like had a yard before, and there's leaves everywhere, and I like had to buy a rake. This is bullshit, but <laughs> that's, you know, that's the main thing on my mind right now. <laughs> you know there are two-sided marketplaces designed to solve that problem. Someone said that to me earlier today, and I was like, ah, right. They were like, are there any kids in your neighborhood? Just hire them to do it. And I was like, Oh, there are kids everywhere in this neighborhood. Yes, I that never even occurred to me. <laughs> anyway, what's up with you? Um, I am also in the new place. And uh, if it sounds a little echoey, I apologize. I'll try to fix that. Um, I'm in a big old room now that is Leg Up Health's first official like storefront slash office. So very cool. Um, it's pretty cool. And yeah, I don't have... It's a, it's a t- managed property. So I don't have to worry about any leaves. What's cold for you? Because it was 40-something degrees, like low 40s this morning for us. Yeah, around there, like kind of high 40s, low 50s. It's not like uncomfortably cold, but we had a pretty, we had a warm spell recently where I was getting into the high 80s every day. So it didn't really feel like fall until right now. Now it does. Yeah. Well, where do you want to start today? Uh, Yeah, I have something on my mind that like, I'm not sure if it'll make an interesting topic or not, but I wanted to just... I had a like kind of realization or a, a moment the other day that I just wanted to talk about. We were in a weekly meeting where the whole company sits down and just anyone can bring an idea. A lot of these are like customer requests and stuff like that. And we had a little dilemma that was basically the difference between consistency versus optimizing something for the specific scenario you're in. So let me elaborate on exactly what happened a customer had a, requ- a feature request. They wanted to like see something on a screen that you don't currently see. And we were we, we all decided, yes, this is a good idea. We should add this, but how? And there's kind of an existing design language in our app that would say, here, like, here's how it's done everywhere else. Should we do it that way? Or we had a different idea, put it on this other part of the page and style it differently. Everyone agreed the the way that's not consistent with the rest of our app is actually the best way to handle it for this specific page. And so we kind of had a discussion about, is it better to be consistent or is it better to kind of optimize each page for itself? And I think this applies to design, but it also applies just generally across the business, like how important consistency is. I realize that's super vague, but I was wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Where are you in your thought process on it? We all agreed that we should make it... I I think consistency is overrated a lot of the time. I think there are times where it really matters. But in this case, we're like, our customers are not going to... They're not going to look at the better way and be like, well, this is great, but your design language says you should have done it this other way. I just don't think customers think that way. Can you unpack design language a little bit? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm probably using it wrong, to be honest, because like... I have practical experience as a designer, but no actual like education in it. My, I use design language to basically mean, uh, or a design system is another thing people say. To I'm sure it means a different thing, but to me it means the same thing. Where it's like, 
we have a way of handling certain situations. So every page that the header looks the same and the buttons look the same. And it's not, I mean, those are very superficial examples, but if you get deeper, like the specific example here is we need to show a list of contacts. We have this component that's here's like, it's a little badge for each contact with optional action item buttons you can put like delete or something like that. So we kind of have a, quote unquote, design language for how do you represent a list of contacts in the app. And what I'm saying is for this one situation, we were kind of thinking that doesn't really work as well here. We should just make up a new way to do it. Got it. So it seems like design system is a way that you have a consistent user experience across the site. And the question that you're really asking is when do you break your design systems and and norms uh, for uh, for UX and UI. Yeah, and more generally, just how important is consistency? Because a lot of the times being consistent means each individual thing is not optimized for exactly the scenario you're in. It feels like anytime consistency is getting in the way of user experience, then that would be a reason to back off of the UX principle. Yeah, I... I agree. I'm just, I don't, I don't even know where I expect this conversation to go. The thing I'm hesitant about is if you take that too far, there's no consistency at all. Like every single page is just totally different. Um, anyway, I'm sure there are designers listening who are rolling their eyes. Like neither of you know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess um, I, I think of it more in a marketing in, in less technical terms, more in terms of like, a, you know, I'm trying, I've got a new visitor to my website who's trying to learn about the company, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are certain like, you know, consistencies that I've, that I have on my site. Uh, for example, the navigation is consistent across the site. The footer is consistent. The colors are consistent, but I can't imagine having a page with a specific purpose, you know, being constrained by making that page useful, uh, well, by, by it, design principles. So what it's about like, for, forget design for a second? You just said something that's interesting to me. Marketing, it's something I roll my eyes at when marketers talk is they're like, you know, we've got these brand positioning statements and I know you have that and I have that too, but like, this is the language we use to describe this thing. Whereas I kind of feel like if, you know, on this page, maybe you shouldn't use that language. So for example, on your careers page, maybe the way you talk about this to your potential employees should be different than the way you talk about this to your customers or the way you talk to an existing customer maybe should be different than a landing page. Yeah. I like taking this higher up and focusing on it as a concept slash framework for, um, you know, being meaning something like being for something, um, maintaining quality. Um, and at the highest level of the company, that's a positioning statement. Um, and you, and I think the difference between maybe, Constrain, constraining yourself to rules um, or design language or languages mm-hmm. uh, versus aligning to things is different. Um, sounds like maybe you're like, this is a rule here and I don't want to break it versus saying this, we, ex- we, we, the way we've aligned to our core principles in the past don't work for this page. We need to create a new way to align to the core. I would like, if I look at it that way, at the highest level, everything needs to align um, to some principles. That's how you mm-hmm. manage things. That's how you stay maintain that minimum level of consistency that leads to true meaning of a brand. Um, 
or product um, or differentiation. And, you know, maybe that's just the, that language change from system to alignment or a rule, you know, to alignment would, would free this up in all areas of the, of, of the concept. Like for me, I can already see like how, you know, does this align to the positioning statement is a very different thing than saying every nav, every navigation header <laughs> needs to mm-hmm. have, it needs to look the same. What I'm hearing from what you just said is like the, the consistency is really a default. It's saying start here and break the rules if you, if you need to, if there's a good reason to break the rules, but don't like, don't start from scratch with every single decision you make. I think I'm saying something slightly different, um, but toward, but towards the, towards what you're saying, which is the fewer rules, the better. Um, and always align to the rules, never break the rules. Okay. So there's some, there's some rules you don't break and then there's guidelines or whatever. And that, that's really the design system or whatever, these guidelines that can be broken, but it, 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 all else being equal, stick to the guidelines. Yeah. It, recipes, um, or ways, to, ways we've aligned to the brand or aligned to the core rule in the yeah. past. Um, and okay. you know, if it does, if one of these core rules, th- these core one of these ways we've aligned to the core rules in the past doesn't work. Create your new way to align, but stick to the core rules. Yeah. And if okay. you did that, if you apply that to this page, for example, what are the core rules that like you say you weren't designing this and you handed it off to someone mm-hmm. and you wanted them to, to meet your expectations. What are the like three, like, is there one, two, three things or, or less that you would tell them to, to no. like constrain them? Or would you just say, I- make, make the user happy. I think, I mean, with design, we, we don't have, if we had those three rules that they would be not related to this, they'd be like function over form might be one of them or whatever. And in this case, I think all of them, I'm having trouble gathering my thoughts here. I guess what I mean is th- the reason this is inconsistent, we have four, three different screens, viewing a contact, viewing an event, viewing a task. They're all pretty similar. Uh, the thing we want to do would only work when viewing a task. The other two screens it wouldn't work with. So there's like a consistent thing that we could do across all three of them. But we're basically saying, should we do it differently on tasks? Because it, it'll it'll like be a lot more clear. Tasks are basically, they don't take up as much of the screen. So there's just extra space available. Um, it's just a weird one-off situation. So anyway, I, I feel good about the decision we made there. But I what you just said helped me. After we made the decision, I was talking to everyone else at the company, like, how do we justify this? And I had no way of justifying it. And now I think what you just said is helpful. You have some rules, don't break them. And then you have defaults, guidelines, whatever you want to call them, which you should stick to when you can and break them when you need to. The, yeah, the, like, don't douchebag. The douchebag in me is like thinking to jazz improv class where they're like, you have to learn all the scales. And then if you if you always play the notes that are on the scales, it's going to be really boring. So you have to like break the rules every once in a while. Yeah, exactly. And it sounds like in this case, uh, just just real quick clarification. In this case, following the guidelines would actually break the rules. So um, now that I, that's not how I, I, I think okay. the rules are irrelevant. There are no rules that apply to this specific okay. decision. Okay, there cool. are guidelines that we broke because they, there was a better option here. That's how I'm viewing this. Cool. Um, anyway, that, 
probably was more of a rabbit hole than uh, anyone's interested in. But <laughs> uh, anything on, on your mind to, uh, to I guess you're kind of on vacation right now. Do you have anything going on? Uh, I'm kind of going through this reflection period of how disruptive life events are. Uh, and I always, you know, try to do too much when I'm going through one. You know, divorce is one life event. Getting married is another. Having a ch- child. Um, moving is a, a life event. Um, I mean, the IRS recognizes it as a significant event in your life and you can mm-hmm. take advantage of things that you otherwise wouldn't be able to take advantage of because you move. And I always fail, I think, to re- like buffer enough recovery time from life events. And I don't, you don't have them very often, hopefully, but when they, when you do, it's like, man, next time I have a life event, I'm going to make sure I over buffer for the mm-hmm. move because I think I've, I, I came into this week having way too high of expectations on work, having moved over the weekend and not being done. So I'm just now getting to the point where I'm like, okay, my office is unpacked. The garage is all set up. Uh, you know, we're, we're living now versus moving. Yeah. And, uh, I think I could have gotten there faster if I had de- been focused on the life, like getting through the life event versus trying to work and do the deal with the life event at the same time. That makes sense. This even with vacation, sometimes when I get back from like a real vacation, I think I need a break from that. Like you've been traveling, you haven't been sleeping near in bed and it's like building an extra one or two days off before you go back to normal life can be helpful there. Totally. Yeah. Especially like when you're traveling on airlines or long road trips, anything like that. There's that's exhaust. Traveling is exhausted. Yeah. Exhausting. Exhausting. Yeah. And yeah. moving really is. I, I'm trying to move in one weekend and get back to work on Monday sounds intense. Yeah. I, I won't do that again. Um, yeah. But uh, anyway, I've gotten through all that. I'm now uh, ramping up outreach again. My la- update last week was that, you know, basically, and I flipped the script again from 80% product, 20% outreach uh, to pretty much, and by outreach, I really mean sales and marketing. So now I'm 80% sales and marketing, which is mostly outreach and uh, 20% product. And man, I've already, I've been doing it for a half a day, maybe one and a half days now. And it's so fun. Yeah. Are you more or less doing what you were doing a few months ago? Just like reaching out to your networks, talking to your current customers and saying, do you know anyone? That type of thing. Yep. I'm glad you like that. I hate that stuff. Um, Liking that seems like such a gift for an entrepreneur. (laughs) What I like, I don't necessarily like the, the like initial reach out. What I like is what it leads to. So I, I think once you can wrap your head around that, if you reach out to 20 people, Mm -hmm. you know, less than five of people might respond, like re re re-engage you on that. Um, especially via email, because I think people are, are getting spammed like crazy right now by email people. And so I'm fully prepared for people not to respond just because they don't ever see my email. But Mm -hmm. if, if you assume that five people respond and you're reaching out to 20 people, you authentically want to connect with those five connections and just finding out what's up with people. Um, it's fun. And mm-hmm. um, you know, 99 times out of a hundred, there's some way that one of you, you can help them or they can help you, which leads to an action. And it, it kind of creates, you know, it creates this you know, momentum pretty quickly that 
leads to more momentum and sort of spiders out. That's, that's what I like is, um, it's sort of this, uh, energy that comes not from the, not from the outreach itself, but from the conversations that result from the outreach. You don't feel that way. I a hundred percent agree with what you're saying. I think a weakness of mine is that I am too transactional in my interactions with people. And this is even true with friends and stuff where if, if I'm having dinner with someone and everyone's done eating, it's not that I want to stop hanging out with them, but I'm just like, it's time to get up. Like we were here to eat and the food's gone. We got to go do something else. I, it's just like my brain's broken in that way. <laughs> Tyler, by the time you finish eating, everyone's done eating and ready to go too. That's a fair point. I... <laughs> <laughs> You've never seen a man eat slower. <laughs> uh, but no, your, your point about it sounds like you go into the conversation saying, I'm just going to talk to them and just see what happens. And uh, I think that's a great, I can do that over email. I love emailing back and forth with people. But for some reason, when I'm talking to them, I just feel this urgency of like, I need to provide you value or you need to provide me value or like, like what's the point? What are we doing here? And I probably just need to get over that. (laughs) Yeah. And I would say most of my conversations I prefer to have digitally too versus Mm -hmm. or written versus um, in person or virtual or over the phone. But if it goes that way, it's usually a good, there's a good reason for it too. Yeah. What else for Um, you? So I've been talking on and off over the last few months about that we're we're moving stuff to Webflow. I think we're either this week or next week doing the first phase of that is getting deployed, which is our help site is officially moving into Webflow. So it's the plan is we're going to make help.lessannoyingcrm.com. That's the Webflow domain for now. The help site's over there. So anytime anyone clicks a link to the help site, they'll get redirected to that subdomain. Then we're going to move all of the marketing pages to help. And then once it's all moved over, we're going to flip it to dub, dub, dub. Um, so that's the plan. Uh, one of the things this is leading us to me to think about is we have one subdomain right now, www.lessonwingserum.com. All of our code is in it. The app, the marketing site, the contact form, the sign-up page. Now we have to move it off of that because Webflow is not like a real server. We can't run our own code on it. So I've just been going through trying to figure out, okay, so our app is going to go to app.lessannoyingserum.com and then some of these pages are going to go to account.lessannoyingserum.com because they're not actually in the main app build. We're just like modernizing. Um, One of the interesting takeaways from this is I planned out a pretty complex version of this that was going to take months of developer time. And we had a meeting. I had a meeting with um, Bracken, who's the kind of DevOps person, and Robert, who's the, the technical lead. And we talked through it and everyone was more or less on board with the plan, except we got to the end of it. And I was like, even though I'm the one who put this plan together, does anyone else feel like this is complete overkill and we don't have to do the vast majority of this? Um, and we talked about it for like three minutes and we're like, oh yeah, what, like, why are we doing all of this? I love, I love when that <laughs> happens. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's great for the business and the technologist in me is like, no, I like the reason I overplanned it is like our current system is really janky and not very elegant. And I, we are moving towards this elegant approach and the new system, the, the compromise is even jankier than our current one. So we're like taking on new technical debt rather than paying off a lot of technical debt, but it, it just doesn't make sense to make the investment right now. So yeah, you made a good decision. It sounds like, but, but you also have, I think when oftentimes when that happens, when you plan out, like you have a vision of like the perfect scenario 
of a project. And this applies to marketing. It applies to sale. It applies to every area of a business. It, you, what it does is it creates a vision for like what things could be like. Mm-hmm. And then when you, when you, t- you know, sit down with people and you really go, okay, what problems are we trying, do we need to solve right now? Given limited resources, almost always you ha- you have the information available to quickly make a decision to do the minimum necessary um, right now. But you, but you do that, you know, w- with trade-offs, known trade-off decisions and hopefully with a, with a sort of future buy-in being built to march towards the larger vision later. And I, so I, so it's like a lot of times it feels like you've wasted a lot of planning and that sort of thing. But in reality, you've created buy-in for a future project that, um, that it may never come to fruition, but if it does, you don't have to go back to the drawing board. That's a great point. Two of the best things we've done as a company started this way where, uh, and I mean on the product side, not like the best to- overall things, but we twice convinced ourselves to build a whole new product. Like to, in the first case, it was rewrite our entire code base from scratch, which everybody knows is a mistake, but you know, everybody has to like think about it. And, and we actually convinced ourselves we started working on it. Uh, and then after maybe a couple weeks of it, I realized this is way too big of a project. We stopped that. But in the process of planning it, we had come up with a few really important design changes from our main app. And so we just took those and it took like a week to incorporate those into the old product and it made it so much better. And then this, the exact same thing happened again, where we were going to build Sparse, which you know about, which is like a failed product that we abandoned. And in a sense, it was a huge waste of time. But in designing this new product, again, we pulled like one little idea out of it and put it in Less Annoying CRM and it worked great. So yeah, letting yourself indulge in overplanning something as long as you have the discipline not to follow those plans can be an interesting exercise. It also allows you to think from a blank slate. Um, I used to one piece of advice I got from someone was if you were hired as the CEO tomorrow, this was someone gave me this advice at People Keep said, "What would you do? What would you do differently if if you mm. were blank slate CEO?" And if you can force yourself to see things from that angle, oftentimes it gives you vision and you know, new vision. Um, and it, you know, I, I would say like motivation to plan something that maybe hasn't been thought of before. And then almost always, because you are the existing CEO, you don't do them because you know more than a new CEO would know you have relationships, but thinking through them might lead to like one thing or two things that you do now that is different, minor things that make a big difference over time if you do it a bunch. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So I, at the, in the moment, I felt like I wasted a lot of time, but now having this conversation, it's like, oh, okay. Maybe that's, uh, the, that's just the process. That's how progress gets made. Yeah, I think the, what you avoided was starting a project and pivoting um, mm-hmm. because of the work that you've done. I think you, you're you going to get this done, move on, and then work on things that actually matter right right now. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's like an example of a good thing, <laughs> not a bad thing. Um, yeah, it's just in the moment. You have to remind yourself of that. I, I feel like you have a rant to, on Webflow, and I, I'm anxious to hear it while we're on the topic of Webflow. Yeah. Um, I've, I've mentioned this before. So you and I, I think, both love Webflow and are kind of 
frustrated by some of its limitations because the promise of Webflow, for anyone who hasn't used it, it hosts your whole website. It's kind of like WordPress or something. With WordPress, it's a PHP code base on your server that you can, if you have to go in and change something, you can. With Webflow, it's a third-party server and you're just completely at the, the whims of whatever they've got there and you can't change it, which is convenient, but limiting. So one of the limitations that I'm frustrated with with Webflow is you can't have capital letters in URLs. And I don't care, to be honest. I'm not saying capital letters are better than all lowercase. The point is our current URLs are all like have capitals, have capital letters in them. And so there's kind of this SEO challenge now of how do we, how do we like, we have to redirect all of these. We have to change all these URLs for no real reason other than just this limitation in Webflow. But then the real challenge I'm running into is when you do one of these redirects, uh, it loses all the URL parameters. So if you go to a page, like let's say slash pricing, like lessonwingserum.com slash pricing with a capital P, it's very easy to say, redirect that to pricing with a lowercase p. But if it was slash pricing question mark currency equals, you know, British pounds and number of users equals 10, uh, it's pretty difficult, if not impossible, to redirect to the new pricing page and keep the URL parameters in place. And it's just, we are jumping through ridiculous hoops to make this work, which like we're basically getting our own developers involved in writing a lot of front-end JavaScript code. And it's just like, that kind of defeats the purpose of why you use Webflow. <laughs> so, well, yeah. Well, the nice thing is you're, you're investing engineering resources into a temporary problem, which is the transition. Once the old URLs become sort of unindexed and unused, hypothetically, you should be able to pull back on all that JavaScript, right? Yeah, at some point. It just, um, it's just frustrating that it's necessary for, for something that, I don't know, it's just a simple redirect. Like, <laughs> Well, that's how I feel about their, yeah. you know, their sitemap. It's like, all I need is the ability to say exclude. That seems yeah. relatively like, like a simple feature but also a critical feature if you're transitioning, you know, from a if you're a big website um, that needs to be managed. So, this what, is the what are you going to do? With, are you going to have you complained? Have you submitted an idea? No, a million other people have already submitted this. So, uh, there, there, just uh, URL redirects in general is a pretty big set of feature requests on their forums, and it seems as though they are not prioritizing it. And in their defense, we're still switching to them. So, you know, if, if they're thinking, does this get us more customers? Probably this is not a deal breaker for anyone. It's just a huge inconvenience. Yep. I, that's how I feel about it, too. Yeah. It, this is really, I guess, anything that's hosted versus like the like self-hosted. This is, I, I'm sure my customers feel this way about Lessening CRM. They, they come in and they're like, you know, 95% of what you're doing is great, but I just hate the fact that you don't have this one thing. And it, if nothing else, it's probably good for me to experience this to like have a little empathy for you know the, what what the customer is going through when they sign up for our product. I doubt that your customers having that feeling to the extreme nature that this is having. I this is this is an example of like you've built a really awesome feature in terms of design and making it. You can build a really awesome website and manage a really awesome website Webflow, and because you're basically banking on that advantage to not like take care of some some pretty significant pain points for power users. These are this is power user feature. And I it's like it's like 
man, like these are the people who are going to sing your praises if you solve the problem. It, it feels like an oversight to me. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, it's well, goes back to we, we talked before that I don't I don't think Webflow knows who they're for yet. Yeah. They're they're like too successful right now and, and they're succeeding across all these different segments and niches and stuff. And this is something that actually worries me about using them is they could pivot and, and not be serving my type of business five years from now. So member stack who is the which is the t- no code user authentication platform that I use. They recently um, went kind of silent for a couple months um, while they raised some money and repositioned. And it was terrifying for me. I kept emailing and being like, give me some insight, you know, because I, you know, I I got benefits. Like I haven't really decided whether I want to put that on Glide. I I said Glide, but then I got into it and I was like, oh, this isn't great. And so I'm trying to decide whether to put it on member stack as well. And uh, they just came out and their new positioning is primarily for developers and marketers. Mm. And so it's like right in the sweet spot for what I want. And Great. it was like this huge relief. But but to your point, Webflow doesn't even have that. Like Webflow, um, what 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 uh, MemberStack has now is actually a huge advantage for them because I, I can predict that they know what to work on. Yeah. And a lot of the limitations that I'm experiencing that we've talked to talked about offline, I have no doubt that are going to be addressed in short order because of, you know, the, the resource they have at their disposal and the focus that they have. And the, the flip side, like, so it's good that member stack worked out for you. I don't know if you followed drip at all. Um, this is like a pretty, is this Rob Walling's company? Yeah. I mean, he, he sold it, but so Rob Walling, the kind of guy who started microconf and startups for the rest of us, he started drip. It was kind of his he had a handful of smaller successes before that, but that was kind of his big breakaway success. Sold it. But a bunch of people like us, people in kind of the indie hacker bootstrap type community use Drip. They came out after they sold with this new positioning that they, they're they the e-commerce CRM. Originally, it was like Drip emails, right? A kind of onboarding emails, that type of thing. And they just completely repositioned as the e-commerce CRM. And I'm sh- they must have e-commerce customers, I guess, but that's not at all the audience that kind of got them where they are. And so they put that, the product still works just fine for me. But every time I log into Drip, I'm like, oh, right, we need to switch because I'm not an e-commerce company. And it's just a matter of time before this stops being for me. Yep. I, I, I hope none of the tools that I've built like a pelt on go that direction, but I'm prepared for them too. Webflow is one that's at risk for me, I feel like. Yeah, uh, it'll it'll be fascinating to see what they do because they're just so successful right now. They, they could go any direction. That's the problem. But they probably can't not go a direction. I bet. We'll see. Uh, just while we're on the topic, another thing. I know you don't listen to a ton of this type of podcast, but um, Bootstrapped Web is one where one of the hosts has a business built on the Shopify. Well, it was an extension of Shopify doing uh, post-purchase like upsells or something like that. And apparently Shopify came to them and was like, you have to, like, you're basically competing with us. So stop. And they reached an agreement where they, like the the other company is building an app in the Shopify app store, but they have to like follow all these new rules now and stuff like that. But listening to it is really scary because it's like, yeah, if you, if you really heavily rely on someone else's platform, I building on top of Shopify is different from what you're doing, but like, 
the every single one of those is just a potential it's a dependency that could go wrong in the future yeah what i like about what what what's what's scary about that is that shopify is the whole product in that case mm-hmm. one thing that i that i think no code benefits from is that there is really a stack and so while there's risk in the chain breaking more risk in one of the pieces breaking one of the like each piece is replaceable with yeah. co- competition competitive offerings or or manually coding it and so it uh it does create some risk diversification there but man i f- i would be terrified if like take member stack if member stack had said um we're going to go be you know something else i would have been i'd have been scrambling to figure out how i would i would uh respond to that yeah there's a lot of advantages to using tools and platforms and stuff like that but at some point i feel like a business if it gets if, if it reaches sufficient maturity you kind of have to de-risk all that stuff you you have to move off one way or another this is why i, I think it's awesome you're building a no code but if it really works you're going to have to like get your own servers and code it from scratch at some point right are are you thinking of it that way i don't know i i think uh i need to have a plan to do that um mm-hmm. that's ready to you know pull the trigger on when i do it whether i do it because i want to de-risk or because i have to um i think is a different story i i'm pretty i'm pretty confident that if it became an issue there'd be time to deal with it sort of like yeah, the shopify side guys so I've, I, part of my planning is I already have a relationship. I've talked about, you know, I've got someone who is a third party firm who mm. can come in and, and handle this, um, if, if it comes, um, but when would I handle it like that? You know, years from now. Yeah. And, and again, I do think this is a much bigger risk for someone you're not building on someone else's platform in the set. Like you're not in the Shopify store or I think did zoom just say that they're, uh, I saw like a headline, but I didn't actually read the article. Zoom opened up an app store. There's probably tremendous opportunity in there. Like if you want to start a new business with, you know, built-in customer base, not a ton of competition since it's brand new, it's a great way to get up and running. But if you do that, I mean, you are really, really at the mercy of Zoom. And I, I just, if I were in that position, be thinking, how do I break this dependency? Or I mean, for a startup to last company, I think is the caveat here. If you're, I think there's there. If, if your goal is to make a quick buck, um, and then leverage that to transition into something different or sell it, um, that could be a pretty interesting playbook um, for small wins, but not for building a company to last. I mean, yeah, that you'd have to, you definitely have to, you know, figure out a way to get platform independent um, if if you wanted to build a startup to last company. Otherwise, you there's too much. Um, what you talk about being being having room to fail, platform risk like that is very limits your room to fail, which makes it very difficult to think long term. Yeah, and eventually you're competing with the platform. Like everyone who relied on Amazon's e-commerce stuff is regretting it right now because they're like, oh, Amazon came along and they just took all of the good products, made their own like off-brand copy of it. I bet Shopify will do the same thing. Shopify is going to come around and compete with all of the people building apps in their store right now. Apple's doing it right now. Like, mm-hmm. so it's, it's, uh, I think if you, if you do rely on a platform for distribution or for even like building on top of, you either need to realize that it's a finite, you're playing a finite game 
mm-hmm. uh, a finite game. Uh, it's not a startup to last opportunity unless you transition. If you unless you forcibly transition, leverage that first, you know, lily pad to to the next one. And it's, you know, if you go in with the right mindset, I think there's a real like I think there's a real cash generation opportunity there, though. You know, the one platform that hasn't done this is Salesforce. Hmm. They, Salesforce. They, they've done a few. Yeah. Yeah, they've done a few. Like, I'm sure they've done a little bit of yeah. it, but they're, I think they even like in their investor updates and stuff like that, they basically have to say, why does our product suck so much? And that's my bias showing as a competitor of theirs. But they're basically like, every change we make to the product kills some percentage of the ecosystem of add-ons that have been built. And we need these people to trust that they can actually build on our platform. So they've actually explicitly said, we're going to sacrifice the quality of our first, like our direct product in order to make the ecosystem stronger, I don't think there are very many companies that would do that. I didn't realize how reliant they were on the on the uh, developer ecosystem. Then that's cool. It's huge for them. Yeah, and I think it's it's brilliant. It's it's a good strategy for them. Um, cool. Do you have any other updates? Should I just keep going here? Keep going. All right. So I mentioned uh, a while back that there's kind of a mastermind group that I'm. In I'm I'm like the mentor for it, uh, but I'm also participating in it. So um, we had our first meeting last Friday. I'm not sure what's supposed to be confidential, what's not. So I, I won't like say who's in it or anything like that. But it's I'm I'm really excited about it. Uh, it's a group of businesses that are all they're all at a really really exciting place in their journey, which is making enough money that you know there's something there, but not making enough money that you can stop worrying about like, is this going to work? You know, like, what is that? Like, how much money is that? So I I don't know exactly like who's making what, but in my head, I'm thinking between one and maybe 10 or 15,000 MRR in monthly recurring revenue. At that point, you're like, this is good enough that if it, if it went away, I would be devastated. But if it just stays where it is, that's not good enough. So I'm, I'm on my way to that stage and I talk to, I have to, this is the hardest conversation I have with my wife because it's like 15 KMR is not enough. Like Mm -hmm. that is, that is enough to pay one person like a sustainable, like live, you know, life, you know, maintain probably the life if you left a cushy job. Um, and that means that you're not investing in the company at all. Right. And so there's this gap from 15 K and MRR to 30, 45 K, you know, 50 K in MRR that you really aren't a real company until you hit. And, uh, I am, you take, you have to take it one step at a time. Right. But like, I, I have, to, I'm having trouble. I'm realizing I'm not doing a good enough job setting expectations for my, mm-hmm. for, for Sable uh, around that. And I'm going to use the language that you just gave me, which is there's a lot of people like, we're in, the, we're, we're entering this one, 1K to 15K situation. We want to get over the 15K as quickly as possible, but we can't get too excited about this thing um, or get too uh, greedy around distribution, um, paying ourselves, that kind of thing until we get over the hump. It's worth saying you can run a perfectly good long-term business on 10 or 15K. You just have to decide, yeah, I'm not going to hire people I think it really works well for a lifestyle of people who do this nomad thing. It's like, I'm going to go live in, you know, Thailand and live like a king for 10,000. I mean, $10,000 a month is way more than you need to do that. But if, yeah, if your goal is to build a company with employees and stuff like that, the number has got to be a lot higher than you think. <laughs> I, certainly for me, it was like, I'm just at a point now where 
I'm making probably like comparable salary to what I'd be making if I had never started a business. This is sort of my own fault for having such low margins and stuff like that. Like definitely a lot of business owners hit that point before 2.8 million ARR, which is what we're at. But yeah, it just, it takes longer than you think. <laughs> yep. Um, but anyway, so the reason I brought that up is I love, as, as stressful as it is, I really miss that phase because you're so hungry, but you also like it's working. There, there's a type of hunger. There's a million entrepreneurs out there who want it, but have nothing. There's a much, much smaller number who are like have something worth protecting, but it's not there yet. I just think it's a really exciting time. So I'm looking forward to this mastermind group because it's really easy having done this for 11 years and I've got a good salary now. And I, it's easy to get comfortable and kind of complacent and forget the startup mentality and just talking to them and hearing how hard they're pushing is going to help motivate me. So I'm, I'm really excited for it. That's awesome. Yeah. You're making me realize that my entire goal this year with leg up health, I kept trying to explain it in different ways to myself, to Lena, to, to Sable, but really I just want to get into that. We've got something and I'm, it's working. Mm -hmm. I don't really care if it's a thousand MRR or 15,000 MRR. I just want to get in that zone because I know that if I get in that zone, I'll be able to put, it'll give me all the motivation I need um, to push through to the next phase. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and I, I guess that, that I'm, I'm my takeaway from this conversation is that I'm going to quick, I need to clarify that that is a win for this year for myself and for my, you know, and for Lena and for uh, my family. And I think that'll take a lot of pressure off, honestly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, how, where do you need to be to be at that, let's say 1000 MRR uh, number? Like, is it a number of customers? Is that how you would think of it? Yeah. 25 customers, 25 clients, oh, 25. Okay. So you're, I mean, I don't want to knock on wood, but you're for sure going to hit that. I'd be very surprised if I didn't, uh, but it's a lower, it's a substantially lower number than what our goal is. Yeah. Our base goal is and a six, like a really, really low number versus our stretch goal. So like if you know, 25 is one K, you know, 75 is our base goal for the year. Mm -hmm. Um, 75 clients, uh, starting January 1st and then 150 is our stretch. I'm realizing that 75 is really probably considering that we launched in February this year. I mean, I guess, I guess what I'm really looking for is, are we doing well as a company relative, like how do you grade yourself? We launched in February. It seems like we're doing well. I think this is something that the indie hacker community gets so wrong is there, there are these people that go on, and I'm thinking of indie hackers, the website specifically, which I love. I don't want to sound like I'm criticizing it, but there are a handful of people that'll go on there and be like, look, here's an example of someone who launched a thing. They went on product hunt, got number one, all their newsletter subscribers signed up and they were at you know, they were basically paying their own salary six months later. And they're kind of like, that's what you should do. If a business is working, that's what you need to do. I'm of the opinion, if the business is moving in the right direction, it's working. Like, yeah, it, I realize you can't wait maybe 10 years, but it's very, very clear it's working, right? <laughs> You're getting customers faster than they're churning. It's profitable. There aren't really worries about, about the unit economics here. If you wait, will you be there in six months? Maybe not. Will you be there at some point on this trajectory? Absolutely. And it, hopefully you can scale it up even more. But I, I just think people need to be more patient, personally. It's interesting. Like, uh, 
can I take this in a different direction? Yeah. Do you have any more on the mastermind group? I'm super glad that you're sharing stuff like this. It gets me thinking too. And I'm sure it's having, I think more, the more you can share from the mastermind group, the more useful it is to me. And I think also everyone listening, because Mm -hmm. this is, this is a, I think very powerful. One of the things I'm very conflicted on right now is whether to, how much to invest in leg up benefits. Um, you know, I've gone, I, you've heard me say like, I'm going to build it in a weekend and I ran into some roadblocks to now I'm like outreach is number one, uh, for leg up health, which means product development's taking a back seat. Leg up benefits, it, you know, what's interesting about leg up benefits it's, is it's real revenue. It's not proving out a model or anything mm-hmm. like that, but it's real revenue. I've got companies that are willing to pay for it right now. Right now I have no way to accept their money. Right. I've had a Stripe account, but like I'd have to manually bill them and I haven't really figured that out. Do it. Yeah, it's a I, piece of cake. You just go in and put an invoice into Stripe. It's super easy. Yeah. So I'm, I'm realizing like m- maybe my goal is wrong around 75 clients for like a health and I should convert it to an MRR number mm-hmm. and, and uh, see what, how that changes behavior. But again, I'm getting into this, you know, question of, am I working on the right thing? And, you know, should I expand my focus to, you know, which is going up to revenue or should I stay focused on, on just clients? Do you have any quick thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the two are so related. Like they're, they they are different businesses. I get that, but they're so related down the line. They merge in my opinion, five years from now, if everything works out, you're not even going to be able to tell the, it's like how, which path did you take, but you get to the same spot. So in my opinion, I would take the approach of, you know, the book Traction, there's two books called Traction, but one, the one that's about all the different marketing channels and stuff, I would just treat these as two different distribution channels for the same business and say, let's experiment with them. And whichever one works better, that's the one we're going to go after. Yeah. So I, if I look at leg up benefits as a distribution channel, great. I'm doing that right now. I don't need to build, build billing for that. Because I could I, just... Sorry, sorry. But distrib- not just distribution to get individual insurance clients, but just like a way to Paying make customers, money. Way to yeah. Make money. Yeah. So I think what you're arguing for in that answer is focus on making money right now and not units. Yeah. It, sound, it sounds to me like it's easier to make money with the employer offering. Um, I, if, if it were me, I'd just do that until it stopped working, which hopefully it never will. Yeah. Interesting. There's this thing inside of me that really wants to figure out marketing to consumers first before letting myself go buck wild on the, on the, you know, employer mark, you know, opportunity distribution opportunity. And maybe that's how you market to consumers though. I just realized I have a huge announcement that I haven't shared with anyone. It's been two years on Sunday, my two year non-compete with my former employer ended. So I now have no restrictions on what I can do in the benefit space. Congrats. That that's gotta be a weight off your shoulders. Huge weight. And I I uh I I guess I didn't realize how limiting it would be when I agreed to it, but mm-hmm. it was hugely limiting. I've said no to a lot of things as a result of that non compete. Go compete now. <laughs> yeah, I can do whatever I want to do. It's funny, I'm I've got a firm uh who called out it's uh based in Indiana and they're coming like the ho- the owners are coming out for a day to hang out with me to see if they it, I have no idea what they what they expect to have happen exactly, but they're coming out mm-hmm. to to hang, and uh, hmm. they're old partners from early days. 
But they've waited. They scheduled. They they waited until the nine compete ended to to schedule the <laughs> so meeting. They, they've got something very specific in mind then. Huh? Yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, um, but yeah, I mean, back to like obviously do do what you want to do. Like I, I'm not trying to say you should do what I'm saying. I'm just saying if I were in your shoes, the employer thing seems like not like for sure the thing that is the thing you should do, but it seems like the one you have put less effort into and like you haven't explored it properly. And it, it seems like it could be a much better way to get what, to get where you want to go. The reality is the reason I have the employer opportunity is what I've built with leg up health. There's just some basic things that's, that's limiting the, the distribution channel of the employer opportunity. And so Mm -hmm. it's probably, I need to, yeah, I think I think I'm staying. I need to stay focused on units, but I need to real. I need to realize that the be, one of the best ways to get units, in addition to network outreach, is to expand the employer offering and, and market it a little bit and, and make it feel real, so that I feel comfortable, you know, telling people about it. It does sound like when you say focused on units, though, you say you're saying you're discounting the money the employer is paying you. You're just talking about getting individual insurance clients. Is that what you mean by that? Yes. Yeah. Like, I mean, I would still obviously build the product and make it a real product. Um, but I guess what I'm saying is the reason I would do that is because I want to get clients for leg up health versus employer revenue for, for leg up benefits. Yeah. Just because... Rick Lindquist, the human being, wants that. Like, like, is there a business reason for that? Because that doesn't sound intuitive to me. I think it's just uh, taking, you know, not getting taking my off the ball with leg up health and getting leg up health to that level by itself um, by the end of this year versus mm-hmm. you know chasing the shiny ball. Okay. Again, it's staying uh, it, focused it's on great. you know on leg up health. Yeah, yeah. As the driver of all behavior versus, you know, trying to make, you know, go make money. If I open it up to making money, it's like, should I take on a consulting project next week? Sure. I, yeah. I think maybe where we differ here is just to me, leg up benefits seems like a pretty, such a similar, it's so related to your mission. It furthers the goal that the, the, whether you make money from an employer paying you or an individual insurance policy, to me, they both feel consistent with what you're doing. But the good thing here is you can't go wrong. Like, they're both working. And even if I'm right, and even if you're passing up the bigger opportunity, that doesn't mean it won't work. So like, do what, what motivates you here. Yeah. I think we're, 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 I think in the, I'm, I'm mostly brainstorming. What's the reason to do the same thing that I would do in either situation. So it really doesn't Mm -hmm. matter. I'm going to probably go do, do it, which is, you know, some viable version of leg up benefits that collects money. So, um, I think we can, I, I got what I needed out of this conversation. You Thank you. Yeah. Cool. Um, all right. I, I think there's, do, I have topics, but they're both a little on the longer side and we've only got like 10 minutes here. Do you have anything you want to talk about? Uh, I've got two topics. Um, one is on the longer side, but you know, one we can talk about real quickly uh, probably is the second wave of COVID. I, I'm getting the sense that if you watch the European uh countries. I remember them taking action before, if I'm correctly, the United States took action the first time around. And I'm noticing that there's a lot of action being taken by European countries to sort of lock down, whether it's borders or the economy or, or the, you know, curfews, uh, for cities. Um, 
it makes me feel like maybe and it you know maybe the United States is different, but it feels like deja vu. And yeah. I'm wondering if you're forecasting sort of a second coming of quarantine and what that would do to your business and and the economy. Yeah. Uh, interesting topic. Let's start the disclaimer. Neither of us are pretending we have any expertise on what's actually going to happen from like a health standpoint. Right. But I mean, I've I've kind of felt like this isn't over this whole time, like nothing. I shouldn't say nothing has happened to make it better. My understanding is if you get COVID, they're better at treating it. And things like face masks and stuff help for sure. So it's not that nothing has changed, but fundamentally, there's still this deadly virus that's like, especially in this country, we've done almost nothing to address it. I think, yeah, when people are going back into like when you can't go outside, everyone I know, I'm probably one of the most conservative people of people I know. I'm not. I'm doing almost nothing. Everyone I know is going to patios and all this stuff. And I, I worry about what's going to happen when you can't, if you can't socially distance outside, what should happen is you don't see people. And what's going to happen is you see people inside. I think <laughs> I'm worried. I don't know. But kind of the, the, do you, do you see the observation of your Europeans are sort of going back to phase one sort of lockdown yeah. modes like I've, is that does that mean the united states probably will too or do you think that somehow we're we're different well, we're already here we like they're they're responding to numbers that are not as bad as they've been here the entire time mm. um but i i've i've read people say and i this resonates with me that basically the human the natural human response wherever you're from culture government doesn't matter the natural human response is to self-regulate here where it's like if it doesn't, if it seems like it's getting better, you ease up, which causes it to get worse. And then you tighten down again. And it, I, I think probably if let's say it's 10 years before there's like a real vaccine or whatever, I bet it would just oscillate like this back and forth and back and forth the whole time here and in Europe is my guess. What do you think about that? You know, I, I, I guess, uh, yeah, maybe the reality is that we, are going to have to manage outbreaks until there's a vaccine. I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Maybe we're going to have to manage outbreaks until there's a vaccine and outbreaks are going to happen seasonally. They're going to happen as people loosen up. Um, and yeah, we're going to have to manage them as a country period. And what does that mean? It means how do you manage it? Well, it means most likely there's going to be behavioral sort of restrictions and that that may those behavioral restrictions could lead to economic impact um and i guess uh so so as outbreaks increase you can sort of forecast a some some you know trailing economic negative economic impact in which case we should expect you know with that logic not not an expert here not giving any advice but we should reasonably expect to you know in a few months probably start feeling you know, the, the economic and uh, behavioral restrictions of, of this out of this rise in, in cases. That intuitively makes sense to me. What's interesting though, there have been periods throughout like the summer really where people were kind of like, okay, they, they passed this big stimulus bill. Everyone was okay for a bit financially. I shouldn't say everyone, lots of people lost their jobs and stuff, but people got stimulus, PPP money, whatever. And then people were like, okay, there was a stay on evictions that ended. Now people can get evicted. Uh, 
you know, the PPP money's running out, like all these things were supposed to hit. And everyone kind of said that now you're finally going to actually see, like we've been living in a bubble. The real economic impact of this is going to come through. And again, I don't want to diminish all of the pain and suffering so many people are going through right now. But from a business standpoint, my customers are a little like my growth is a little lower than it would have been, but it's, it seems sort of normal. And I kind of wonder like, is this a weird la la land where it's just going to stay this way forever? Or like when, when is the, uh, if this is musical chairs, like when's the music going to stop? Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Like when you look at it as a whole, whether it's the stock market or, you know, less annoying CRM's customer base, you know, you see like just kind of status quo almost, um, but when there's all these signals that I'm seeing, like one, I, I'm part of this group in park city that does a, a morning lecture from some guest, Um, and one of the recent guests was a, uh, the executive director of the, what, what, what like the domestic violence shelter in park city, um, slash, slash the greater area of park city. And she put a presentation together and one of the most interesting stats I saw uh, from the transcript, I don't, I didn't attend this one, but but read this transcript was domestic violence claims are up fifty percent, and that is a signal that is extremely scary to me because, like, those ty- like that's such a big increase that, and and that's what, like the first like sort of order of you know in a family like stress building where it's you know you're responding to some significant mental health or economic crisis uh, that leads to fighting of some sort. And signals like that, that, that just being one micro one are, are I'm seeing more and more, you know, the, yeah. the European I'm, actions are another one and I'm going, man, something's, something's still not right here. I mean, a lot's not right, but that's the thing. You said like the stock market, less knowing serum, those look okay. But if you look at job numbers, they they don't look even remotely okay. If you look at, you know, t- t- you said domestic violence. If you look at alcohol sales, drug overdoses, suicides, I mean, it is not at all the case that the world is fine. It's just because this is a business podcast, like you, how how is it possible that less annoying CRM's business has not suffered more than it has? From the us? only thing I can think of is that we're in you know software la la land, um, and but you should be feeling that if, if if but you're so diversified in terms of the industries that I guess maybe you're feeling. I, I would have thought I'm just surprised. I guess I guess maybe yeah. the maybe the digital health the digital movements that if this has caused are are making up an aggregate for these things. But I think there's some. Sizable if that people were true, hurting. if that were true, GDP would be even, right? Like there, there are indicators for those types of things where you know some things get better, some things get worse. That's not what's happening. Like total spending is down, total jobs are down. Like the the economy is not doing well. It's just not impacting most software businesses unless you specifically sell to you know the travel industry, travel industry or something yeah. like that. Airbnb, for example. Okay, well. I guess I'm looking for someone to tell me what the future holds and I'm not going to get it. Yeah. Who knows? But we should, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking out my window right now and there are squirrels burying acorns. Like that's probably not a bad lesson to learn for right now. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good one. <laughs> uh, anyway, I think that's, uh, that's all I got. Um, I'll, I'll bring these two bigger topics to a future episode. All right. 
everyone. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, I have two favors to ask. First, please write a review on the podcast app of your choice because reviews play a huge role in helping other people discover useful podcasts. Second, if you know any founders or aspiring founders of independent startups, please tell them about Startup to Last. And if you'd like to review past topics and show notes, visit startuptolast.com. I'll see you next week, Tyler. See ya.